Welcome to a new wave of entrepreneurship. I'm Latifa Farah, Associate Creative Producer at Venture for Canada and the producer of a new wave of entrepreneurship. The focus of this podcast is to hear from changemakers and Canadian entrepreneurs to learn about how they've developed their entrepreneur mindset and skills. We'll be chatting with CEOs, founders, and successful business leaders about their career journeys. We're excited to dive into these conversations about how to foster your entrepreneurial mindset and drive. Sikinder Singh Cassidy is a leading technology executive and entrepreneur, board member, and investor with 25 years of experience founding and helping to scale companies including Google, Amazon, and Yodli. Most recently, she served as president of StubHub and as a member of eBay's executive leadership team. She's the founder and chairman of The Board List and has been profiled in Fortune, Forbes, The Wall Street Journal, Business Week, and The New York Times, among others. She has been named one of Elle's Power Women, one of the most creative people in business by Fast Company. So Kinder, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. How are you doing this morning? Good, good. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for coming on. I'm really excited to uh, interview you, and it was uh, so interesting reading your book and, and doing a little bit more research about your background. One of the uh, sort of main themes of this podcast is the question of uh, the import- whether follow your passion is good career advice for, for young people. And you talk a little bit about this in your book. So uh, do you think that young people should follow their passion when making early uh, career decisions? Well, you know, I, I always say to people that, you know, following your passions is a little bit of a misnomer because our passions often change uh, throughout our lifetime and we learn them, you know, by trying out different things. So while some passions may be steady and like music, you know, maybe something you've loved since a child and you'd love to do, the reality is it's hard to know if music is a good career, you know, and it may or may not be, uh, you know, just because you enjoy it doesn't mean it should be your day job. So I think what I encourage people to do is sort of think about, you know, the many, you know, the many choices you might have um, at the start of your career. And as I point out, there are several things that make for kind of good career choices of which passion is one thing to understand about yourself. But would I overweight it? Not necessarily. I would go in with more curiosity and willingness to sort of learn your passions on the job, as well as potentially, you know, looking at your passions as one category of career choices to explore. A lot of the times, to your point, so many young people, I think they think that there's like this holy grail of passion, that it's just like figuring out what this, you know, uh, like a higher power has like put in their brain as the like one thing for them to do uh, for the rest of their their life. And to your point, uh, passion is ever evolving as we are all as as human beings. And uh, I think one of the challenges is a lot of uh, young people actually set themselves up for very unhappy careers when they say, oh, I'm only going to be happy if I find my passion. And uh, it's sort of this uh, uh, by if you focus so much on you need your passion, uh, then you end up actually making yourself unhappy by kind of overvaluing the goal uh, to to some extent. So one thing you talk about in your book, which really resonated, uh, is uh, the importance of tailwinds and headwinds when considering what risks to make and making early career decisions. Can you elaborate on how uh, a young person can evaluate uh, uh, headwinds and, and tailwinds when making career decisions. Uh, By that comment, what I mean in the book is it's sort of, as I said, there are multiple ways we can try and be a smart risk taker. And one is about not just thinking about, you know, who we are and what our goals are, but when evaluating choices, identify where there are macro forces that can accelerate your chances of success or probabilities of success. And so tailwinds or headwinds are sort of like maybe observable characteristics that favor, you know, and give momentum to a choice you're considering. So 
let's say it's a you're looking at a company, it's about what industry is it in? Is that industry growing or not growing? Um, is the company growing or not growing? Is the division you're joining growing or not growing? You know, if you look at the next 10 years, is it likely to be more favorable to that area or less favorable? You know, inside of a company, are you joining a group that has, you know, increasing momentum and leadership? You know, these are the types of questions to ask yourself because as, I, as we think about when we're a smart risk taker, you know, risk taking and finding success is not just all about us. It's us in concert with the environments that we enter. And so you want to give yourself, you know, in some cases, some of the best chances for success. The converse is also true that if you identify an area and it has tailwinds, that also, you know, presents learning opportunity. Maybe you're going to enter a more challenged business, but they're willing to give you more responsibility. Well, that's also setting yourself up for success in a different way. It's giving you outsized learning. But that's about taking advantage, you know, of, uh, let's say, a headwind situation and trying to figure out what is your outsized opportunity in a more challenging situation. In your book, you talk about how at the beginning of your career, you benefited uh, so much from entering, uh, in essence, the internet at the, in the very early days and benefiting from those tremendous tailwinds uh, and being a part of, of uh, building some of the most successful uh, and valuable companies actually in the history of the, the world. If you were 22 today and uh, you're picking a uh, an industry to enter in that has potential huge uh, headwinds, uh, what would be the industries that you would be the most uh, uh, interested in potentially uh, pursuing? First of all, I you know you're asking somebody who believes that you know tech and digital enablement are still at the relatively early phases of their impact on society, which is hard to believe when you think about it. But if I were to say at the macro level, you know, tech enablement, maybe not just pure tech businesses, but every business that has the opportunity for tech enablement, um, you know, I think uh, continues to provide opportunity for growth. So, you know, maybe you're looking at, you know, a whole slew of tech companies and you're trying to figure out like what subcategories as an example will still have the most opportunity for more penetration. That's an interesting way to think about the tech question. ESG. Um, I think everything in and around uh, corporate and social responsibility is has massive tailwinds right now, whether it's from sustainability and climate change and platforms that offer solutions there um, to platforms that sort of increase employee engagement or, you know, or social responsibility. Um, you know, the board list is an example is a platform that I co-founded that, you know, is all about driving diversity in talent and that's going nowhere but up. Um, so I think there's a, some big themes around ESG and sustainability. Um, certainly there's digital enablement platforms across just about every sector of every industry. Um, I would say e-commerce penetration is still something I think a lot about. Again, there are categories that are more e-commerce um, penetrated like travel and categories that really are very little e-commerce penetrated like auto. You know, the majority of auto sales are, you know, every year still happen offline. But if you look at all the companies that are benefiting from driving auto sales online, it's pretty darn big. So e-commerce, ESG, and sort of, I would say, tech enablement. And you look at, oh, by the way, on the topic of cars, you look at the price of the average used car in Canada and the United States, and it is surging. Uh, it's remarkable to see. And I saw you're on the board of uh, Canada Drives, right? It's the name of a company. Yes, that's right. Yes, yeah, that's the leading used uh, auto car marketplace in Canada. That's all digital, door to door. It's pretty remarkable, the rise of uh, the used car uh, sector. And uh, certainly it's one of the, it's an example of how the pandemic can have unintended consequences that uh, in many ways we, we didn't, uh, we can't see, see until, uh, until uh, today. So 
Uh, one of on the topic of boards. So you're on the the board of Gander Drives. You're also the uh, founder and uh, chairperson of of the board list, which uh, helps uh, women um, uh, get on boards of uh, the prominent uh, companies. If you were giving advice to somebody who is, uh, let's say, a seasoned executive, but they don't have any board experience, uh, but they're really interested in joining a board, what's the first step that they should take? Uh well, um, a couple things. First of all, the board list helps not just women, but underrepresented groups of all time of all types access not just the boardroom, but also the C-suite. Um, and if you think about the number one piece of advice I'd give any any leader, diverse or not, it would be understand not just your superpowers, but your unique value proposition entering a boardroom. And when people say, what does that mean? I'm like, what are the one or two dimensions on which you are a thought leader and domain expert that is of value to a CEO strategically? And you have to be able to answer that question and think about for which CEO, at which stage of company, in which industries might you have the most to offer? Um, but you need to be able to craft your unique value proposition, like why you and what dimension are you a thought leader? Um, and I don't mean great ex operationally, I mean a thought leader, i.e. you have, you know, outsized contribution to make in helping a CEO evaluate strategic decisions in that area. Uh, let's say somebody has joined uh, the board of, of a large company, they've followed your advice, they've successfully secured a board position. What advice would you have for this person on how to be a, a really impactful director once they actually join the board? Um, a few things. First of all, I think it's very obvious, but many people say like, listen and learn, you know, be very curious. I think being curiosity in a board member is kind of uh, pretty important. So while you might think your job in a first board meeting is maybe not to offer any opinions, I think it's totally fine to ask questions, figure out what questions, you know, everybody might benefit from versus which questions maybe you uniquely want to ask offline, because the rest of the board may already, you know, be up to speed on that topic. But I'd say be curious. That's the first way to have impact is just curiosity. Um, and I think uh, number two, I think it's about uh, identifying what are the one or two places that you would want to focus your energy um, in order to make an outsized contribution. So, of course, the boardroom wants your opinions on everything, but most of us enter a boardroom knowing perhaps that we have that superpower in one or two areas, which is why we were recruited. So, you know, I'm always like, look for your opportunities for impact and stay focused because it's very easy in a boardroom to just like, there's so much going on and you're ingesting information on everything. Um, be curious uh, and focus on the one or two areas of impact that you think you can have or contribute. In another interview on this podcast, one of the guests uh, talked about the standard for board members is do no harm. Uh, and he argued that so many board members actually detract value from, from an uh, organization. What, what do you think are, are the, some of the uh, most common uh, pitfalls and mistakes that uh, board directors make? Uh, well, they may be on two extremes. Number one is saying nothing. Uh, you know, it's hard for people to get the value of your expertise if all you do is listen but never offer an opinion. So I've definitely seen boardrooms where, you know, the people who never talk. And while that may be useful, um, it doesn't give people the opportunity to learn from you. So let's say you save every comment to just talk to the CEO after the board meeting's done. Well, that's impactful for the CEO. It's really not impactful for the rest of the board to hear your contribution and learn from it. So one, I think way of doing harm is like just being so quiet that you don't know what you, you know, we don't get the value of the expertise, you know, uh, that's why you're there. And then the other extreme I'm sure is, um, is also one, which is like being the distraction in the room where you kind of keep pulling the team back. You ask questions that aren't focused, you know, you, you sort of, you rat hole on a topic and won't let go and you sort of waste other people's time. So those are the two extremes you typically see. I love that uh, framing. And I think it's so true. It, it's uh, two common pitfalls and I, the, the best directors in many ways are able to kind of balance. 
One of the things I find that's really opaque, in particular for people who don't have a board experience, is what's the process of which uh, companies or organizations select directors? Uh, and a lot of times, it's not very transparent, and, and that's why I think your organization is, is so important. Obviously, every organization has a different process for selecting uh, kind of directors, but at a very high level, uh, what's a common way that an organization um, goes about uh, uh, selecting a board member? And can you kind of de demystify the board member selection process a little bit? Sure. Well, at the most macro level, you know, board members get selected either A, when there's a financing event that triggers the need to expand a board or to provide lo different levels of governance. So in, you know, in venture financed companies, every time you raise a round, there's a discussion of what the board looks like and should you add independence or another board seat. When you go public, there are requirements for what your board needs to look like. So typically on major financing events, there are corporate governance requirements. And that's a one kind of, so in the selection process, that's a big time when board members get added. Um, the other times board members get added is when, you know, the CEO sees a strategic need that's missing in the boardroom and either adds a seat proactively or a board member may be turning over and that's the time they reassess. So I guess what I'm saying to you is first and foremost, there's some natural times where selection happens and a lot of time where it isn't thought about, um, you know, so something is triggering kind of that think about what's in the boardroom right now, either financing, someone leaving um, in, 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 in a few and obviously best practice cases, the CEO is proactive evaluating every, you know, two to three years what their board needs, even when there's not board turnover, that is actually less common than it being triggered by some sort of external event. Um, uh, so we would wish everybody thought so proactively about their comp composition, but I think most often it's reactive. Um, and then inside the selection process, look, I think it's driven by one or two things. And inside of a private company, most often driven by the CEO. The CEO is driving the selection process um, in a rather informal way, first tra tapping their own networks. And maybe if within their own networks, they don't find something, then they sort of you know, either do nothing, which is really painful, you know, or they might go to an executive search firm. Um, and obviously the board list exists as a platform for discovery in between, because what we observe is that in that selection process, outside of tapping your first order network, people don't know what to do. Um, you know, uh, and the other extreme, as I said, is hiring an executive recruiter, but that's very expensive. So often though, this starts with a referral process and the CEO will go to existing board members, go to their own network and start to tap, you know, and look for people they know. And obviously this is where um, board processes are opaque and often they favor who's in the referral network at all. And if that's a homogeneous network, you know, there's risk. Um, but I think in a selection process, I think what you can generally expect is to interview with a CEO, several board members, maybe or maybe not in any board process, you'll meet a management team. Uh, you're a huge advocate for uh, the importance of diversity on boards and, and in particular for uh, individuals from underrepresented uh, communities to be on boards. What are some of the business benefits uh, of an organization or company uh, having a board uh, that is diverse and, and more representative of, of their community? Well, first and foremost, um, diverse perspectives drive better decisioning and obviously higher uh, return on equity. And there are multiple reports that sort of prove the value of diverse boards and diverse leadership teams in companies that outperform on a longer term basis on you know, shareholder returns. So diverse perspectives are essential um, to outperformance over the long term. 
But if you think about what does that mean for underrepresented groups, often, you know, underrepresented groups bring perspectives that in addition to their leadership expertise, in addition to the reasons they should be in the boardroom anyway, they also may represent, you know, segments of your employee base, segments of your customer base that you would otherwise not see, right? So, um, you might have a board member who comes out of technology. Okay, that's already a diverse perspective for a non for a traditional board. But in you know, in addition, if they're a woman or an underrepresented group of another kind or both, what you're likely also getting the benefit of is like they are representing groups of customers, influencers, shareholders, um, sorry, employees as shareholders, and really can give you additional benefit and perspective on what those specific groups you know might be thinking about. One of the things you talk a lot, and I really like um, this framework in your book, is you talk about building one's risk-taking muscles kind of over time. Uh, what's advice that you have for a young person on how to, to gradually build the systems uh, and habits so that they can uh, become a smarter uh, and more effective risk-taker? Um, I, uh, I think there are a few things here that I would uh, think about. Number one, um, I think that when you think about a risk-taking muscle, the core thesis of the book is, um, is really that risk-taking to get its benefits, you have to take multiple risks because you wanna become a smart risk-taker. And as we said, like you unlock possibility through small and bigger choices. It's not just one big choice. It's about the series of sort of choosing, responding to the learning or the success you just had and choosing again. I'll say to people, there's, what if I told you that between you and the reward you imagined is not one choice, but probably a hundred choices. Um, then you might just you know, prioritize getting in motion, right? So I always say to people, if you wanna do that, you've gotta build your risk muscle. So find small reasons to take risk every day. And we all have opportunities to take risks today. Like you have, I can guarantee in your current job, you have an opportunity today to take a micro risk to have more impact. Like that's one of the reasons to take risk. You have a micro opportunity. You have an opportunity to probably take a micro risk to learn something new. You probably have an opportunity to take a micro risk to discover, you know, something that you're curious about. Those are all the kinds of risks we can take today. And, you know, like when you, when you take small risks, you're not as invested in the outcome if it fails or succeeds. You're probably more attuned to just getting the learning, but you're also building your muscles, right? Because you don't know which one of those moves might unlock you know, more opportunity or impact. One piece of advice that I've heard a few times that resonates directly with what you're saying is the importance of doing something every day that scares you a little bit. Uh, and uh, obviously within safe uh, kind of context, but I think it's a, it's a really important advice for, for a young person. And I think sometimes our education system uh, and to some extent modern parenting like stigmatizes risk-taking or stigmatizes uh, uh, falling. Uh, but the importance of saying, hey, you know, try something new. And, and to somewhat a meta example is even this podcast. I, a year ago, I had no bad experience doing podcasts. I run a, a charity. And initially we started to say, oh, hey, let's interview a few of our Venture for Canada alumni and just kind of try it out and learn. Uh, and over the course of this year, we've done around 50 different interviews uh, with uh, starting with kind of lower stakes people who are new and were our Venture for Canada fellow alumni. Uh, and then progressively interviewing people who are uh, more and more senior and, and prominent in their careers. And it was, there have been hundreds of little risks as we have developed this podcast over time. Uh, but I, I really want to emphasize uh, the importance for, for young people is think each day about what are little risks you can take. And, and ultimately it's these, these risks compound, which is, I think, one of the things you talk about. Yeah, they do. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. They absolutely do compound. I mean, I think that, um, uh, you hit you hit the nail on the head, right? The core thesis to unlock any large reward is not about one risk taken. 
It's about multiple and it's about just being in a virtuous cycle of risk-taking, learning and reward um, or failure and learning. It doesn't matter, right? You're just compounding your choices uh, in order to unlock what we call this bigger outcome. But along the way, you've got to unlock a lot of smaller outcomes. There is no big outcome without smaller outcomes. There are no smaller outcomes without small choices or big choices, but iterative choices. Um, so it's so interesting that people overweight one choice as if it's what sits between them and success, when often it's this iterative uh, capacity to just keep taking risks and learning. It's more about really systems, to your point, about creating like a system from, for taking little risks than... And yeah, and learning from them. Yeah, absolutely. Try and unlock impact. I always say to people, take a risk, try and unlock some impact, learn what happens. Then take another risk, try and do the same. Atomic Habits is a great book, I think, to think about in terms of like leveraging sort of that framework around creating systems and then ad adapting it to, I think, your context of uh, actually creating systems for, for making all of these little risks. And his you know, thesis is that a lot of the times uh, people, uh, people under, undervalue the importance of sort of systems and habits uh, in, in their daily life and the extent to which really our lives are shaped by really hundreds of thousands of, of little decisions. In your book, you write that research shows that over the long term, companies that remain relatively static are far more prone to failure than companies that make multiple choices, successful or not. Uh, why do you think that uh, this is the case? Well, first of all, research shows it's the case that that research comes from a book called um, Growth Beyond the Hockey Stick. That's a study that McKinsey did of companies over a 30 year period and which of those companies uh, did what's called move up the power curve, where they went from sort of middle performers to top performers and then get got nonlinear shareholder returns as a result. And those who kind of dropped the bottom or got acquired um, at their relative industries and thus, you know, had the opposite happen. So it's not sort of my opinion, it's the truth. One of the core kind of results of that study was that, you know, in order to get the benefits of kind of um, growth of the long term, you need to make multiple moves, including moves that fail. Um, but that's far more of a predictor of success than staying still. And if you stay still, stasis is probably the largest predict predictor of your ability to, quote unquote, uh, fall off the bottom of the power curve, um, you know, and either get acquired or, um, or fail. One of the things you also talk about in your book, which I think is, is really fascinating, is the diverse uh, career experiences you had, particularly at the beginning of your career, where you worked in investment banking, you worked uh, for uh, in the media sector uh, briefly, and then ended up uh, going in, into, into the tech sector. Uh, what In what way do you think that uh, a young person can benefit from uh, uh, pursuing multiple kind of diverse career experiences in different industries? I think there are benefits to growing what I going what I call broad in your career and going deep. Um, so when you start your career and let's say you are experimenting to learn what job or industry or even function you might like, I think spending some amount of time what I call, you know, being broad or deep, it almost doesn't matter because you're going to learn. So when people obsess about like this move or that move, I'm like, look, if you work for great people and do great work you're going to learn. Like, it almost doesn't matter. Like, there's almost no wrong move early in your career. As we, you know, start to figure out what we like, you know, the path to ascension often starts with making choices along a, a you know, a specialization dimension, right? I grew up in sales and finance, and I built my career and my reputation as a business development executive, like as somebody who could own revenue, make, you know, make partnerships happen, you know, drive outcomes, and that was a great place to be. So, you know, often our careers, I think of them as a funnel. In the beginning, you can be, you know, broad, narrow, it doesn't matter, you're going to learn. But as you ascend, you know, in a job or role or pursue promotions, it tends to be in some specialization. And that's great until it isn't. 
Because at some point, if you want to grow, I, you know, I'll say to people, if you want to grow, it means doing things you don't know how to do. So when you've mastered something, where do you go next? Most people just want to stay in that comfort zone. But interestingly, if you look at what recruiters look for, if you look at what even um, board members look for when they're hiring a CEO, you'll often find that they're looking for people who are agile and resilient. So because that's the proof point that you can be successful at the next thing you need to learn, not just the thing you need to know today. So I often say to people, start where you want, broad or narrow, it doesn't matter, you're going to learn. You know, you're likely going to take a series of risks that increase your specialization and your value and your knowledge and your learning and your impact. That's awesome. And then at some point in your career, you're going to be challenged for an opportunity to learn again. And instead of shying away from it, take it. Because what it builds, as we talk about, is not just those risk-taking muscles, but it builds agility and resilience. Nassim Tlaib has a great book, Anti-Fragility, where he talks about nest. And, and just for background of, for our listeners, like what is anti-fragility? So fragility is I take this you know, glass, I throw it on the ground, it breaks, it's fragile. Anti-fragility is I have a glass, I throw it on the ground, and it actually becomes like stronger. Uh, it, it's an essence that something uh, can become stronger over time. And he talks about, okay, well, what is a fragile system? A fragile system is actually something that's deprived of stressors. That the, the way you, you make something vulnerable, which is interesting relating, I mean, lots of critiquing of like modern sort of parenting theory is like, or it's just our society is like, it, which sometimes talks about like, let's make life as easy for kids <laughs> as possible. And then, and then it makes them fragile. So to the point about uh, uh, how do you build anti-fragility, his whole theory is anti-fragile systems are as you actually put, the more pressure you put on the system, the actually more resilient that the system kind of, be, or actually even more than resilient, the, the, as he talks, the more anti-fragile the system becomes. The system actually becomes stronger in the face of, of, uh, of challenges. So I think it's a really interesting one to, to talk about. It really relates to your framework of choose possibility. It's, uh, uh, and I, I see it, you know, in, in my own life is, is uh, you know, this, I've had a few different challenges this year uh, and there was something stressful that happened to me yesterday that would normally have thrown me off. But then I think sometimes when you, uh, ha when you've had to deal with even more stressful situations earlier on, you're kind of like, oh, in the whole scheme of things, it's not, not that bad, not that bad. And I think that it goes to your point about risk-taking is that the more risk you take, the more you kind of get smacked around by the world. Uh, it puts certain things in perspective when you have a, a little bit of a setback. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's why you want to take small and medium and bigger size risks. I mean, by the way, some of them are going to work out. You just don't know which ones, right? Um, but it is absolutely the case that when you put stressors on a system, you put life in perspective and you gain resilience. Does anybody go into any situation wanting stressors? Uh, maybe the most grueling among them, us, but it's not like I go into every situation hoping for failure. It's just that to your point, having now encountered a lot of different outcomes after taking a lot of different risks, my capacity um, to endure stress or even just to look at a stressor and put in perspective is I think fundamentally different than somebody who, to your point, takes only makes only one move. I mean, I think that is in some ways, I would say to people, the next most risky thing to taking no moves while the world surges ahead of you and things keep changing, like the biggest risk is staying static. The next biggest risk in my mind is making one move and just hoping it works out. Like, I'm like, that's just, a, if you think like one move, you know, is meant to work out, that's called extreme luck. Um, if you want to be skilled at it, you keep taking, you keep taking multiple risks and making multiple choices and getting smarter as you go. And change is the only uh, constant. Uh, and there's a great book, uh, another one called by Annie Duke uh, called Thinking in Bets, where, you know, Yep, I have it on my shelf. We share it. We share an agent. So it was one of the very first uh, books I got. I chatted with Amy actually when I was finding my agent, and uh, yeah, 
or with Annie and she's uh, yeah, thinking in bets is a exactly kind of same thesis. Very similar. And, and to the point, you know, her thesis, which is that, uh, or she has many, but I'd say one of her points is that often people uh, think that their best decisions uh, uh, or their best outcomes are caused by their, their best decisions. And the reality is a lot of the times uh, really good outcomes can come from luck or, or really bad outcomes can also come from bad, uh, bad luck. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. The point being is in some ways you de-risk, not, well, you don't de-risk, but you make yourself more anti-fragile, the more risk you take, because you're not putting all as many eggs yeah. in one basket. It's portfolio theory. So Kander, it has been a true pleasure uh, speaking with you today. We have covered a really wide range of, uh, of topics, talking about your book, talking about some of your uh, early uh, career experiences, talking about your experience with uh, the board list uh, and uh, the importance of uh, underrepresented uh, folks being on boards and then uh, what it takes to be an effective uh, board uh, director. I really recommend our listeners check out uh, Choose Possibility. Uh, you can find it uh, on Amazon or uh, many other book selling uh, websites. Uh, so Kinder, thank you so much for coming on the show uh, today. Uh, have a good rest of the day. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for this week's episode of A New Wave of Entrepreneurship. Stay connected with us via our social and our email list. Subscribe to us in your favorite podcast app so that you don't miss our next episode. If you have feedback on today's episode, tweet us at venture for canada that is Venture, the number four, Canada, or email us at podcast at venture for that's spelled F-O-R, Canada.ca. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. I'm Scott Stewart, and until next time, stay safe, stay motivated, and stay grateful. A new wave of entrepreneurship is produced by Latifa Farah. Editing and mixing also done by Latifa Farah. Erica Ormanston is our editorial assistant. Mark Wallach and Premium Beat own the copyright and publishing rights related to the song used in this podcast. The comments and opinions, recommendations, or suggestions expressed on the podcast by the guests are not liable to Venture for Canada and belong solely to each individual. Any information provided stated by our guests and our host is independent of Venture for Canada. A new wave of entrepreneurship is a Venture for Canada brand and all content is owned by Venture for Canada. If you'd like to use our content, please reach out to us at podcast at venture4, that's spelled F-O-R, Canada.ca.